factors. It's not enough just to be critical of economic growth. It's not enough to worry. Now we actually need to scale back production and consumption in rich countries. And so you can see this kind of objection in the 70s that was very global, talking about humanity and all of that. In the 2000s, it starts to integrate global justice. And the concept of degrowth arrives to criticize sustainable development, to say sustainable development that for everyone is just not clear enough. What we should have is sustainable degrowth in the global north, especially for people that are the most privileged as to liberate resources for prosperity in the global south. You could say for sustainable development in the global south. First question is going to be obviously very uh, wanting to understand who you are, Tim, because uh, I'm sure when people look you up, you know, there's a lot of things that they'll find about you. You know, you're a degrowth researcher. Uh, you know, you've just finished your PhD on researching degrowth and you're the editor of the degrowth journal. Um, and I think Shashwad and I, and a lot of people would be very interested to understand like, what's your journey. Like, what was your story? How, who is Tim and how did you arrive at the place that you are now? I can start by telling you this, that the first thing I really wanted in life, and that comes back to when I was a very young kid is a credit card. I still remember being amazed when I saw my grandmother on holiday using a credit card to take some bills out of machine and ATM. And I was like, this is just the coolest thing there is. So I was a, a I developed as a very young little boy, I developed this fascination for money that later transformed into a fascination for economies in general. Even now, I'm in almost 30 years after, every day when I use my credit card, my mind is racing. I'm like, one out of two times, I'm like, I'm patching together what I understand about the economy and I'm imagining, you know, everything that is happening in this little mundane moment where you just swipe your credit card and I'm imagining, you know, all the technological and sociological innovations we needed to have, invention of money, of banks, of labor laws, supermarkets, all, all of this is just flashing before my eyes. And so I phase out. So I, what, who am I? I think I'm an economist in the sense of I'm someone that spent most of my waking hours trying to understand how the economy works. But I'm not only an, econ an economist in the sense of when I was a kid, that was pure curiosity. At some point, I must say, I also wanted to understand the economy to make a bit, um, to make some money out of it. That was like my uh, dark teenage years where I met the dark side of the economy. But in Jedi terms, I, I, I walked away from the dark side, discovered environmentalism and came back to economics with a vengeance in the sense of, oh, wow, now. Now I understand why it's so important and why I really want to understand the economy. Because the economy has turned into the death star of the living world. And so right now, if I'm spending most of my days, all of my days, all of my work, a big part of my leisure too, try to better understand and to equip myself to better understand how the economy works, that to stop a situation that I find is deeply unfair in my gut. So my journey has been quite a, kind of strange because I've been studying economics for 
15 years at university. So I've always been doing that, but the motivations of why doing it has just changed. And so, I mean, you made a Star Wars reference, and I think to 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 counter that with another Star Wars reference, there's instead of a New Hope, there's a there's a Green Hope, so to speak, where you've, <laughs> you're you're crafting a a rebellion, an <laughs> idea of how to counter. Love the T-shirt. Oh wow, that's, we're so that's... equipped for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very serendipitous, but you know, the crafting a, a rebellion, a movement, or a yeah. theory, an idea, a way of living, a utopia, so to speak, of of an alternative way of viewing things um i'd be curious to know what the story is behind and how you stumbled across ideas of degrowth and perhaps even helping us understand as a starting point what degrowth is um so i studied economics specialized in macroeconomics when i was a bachelor student then i went into a master's of environmental economics did a lot of valuation of ecosystem services that kind of stuff so when i say environmental economics for our listeners you need to think application of neoclassical theories to the relation between economy and ecology i found that was rather disappointing we can come back on that why that is but i found these theories were uh, not very powerful analytically to understand the problem and even less to think about solutions. So I went to Sweden to study ecological economics. Back then, that was something that was not available in many countries. So I went to do a master's in ecological economics. And when you do ecological economics, um, and I started to look at economic growth from an ecological economics perspective. So always keeping track of flows of energy and matter. I started to understand that this implicit assumptions I've been working with my entire student life that economies were meant to grow forever was biophysically impossible. And I also understood connecting the dots with inequalities that not only economic growth was biophysically impossible, but also certain countries had already journeyed their way into unsustainable impossibilities. And so that's how I discovered degrowth. I was like, oh, wow, if there is such a process of economies actually, you know, accelerating and expanding, drawing more and more on nature, there must be the reverse of that. And if the problem is one of size or rather one of proportion, rich countries having become too big for the carrying capacities of the ecosystems around them, then surely one part of the solution must be to just, you know, downscale the size of these economies back to a level where they can just be sustainable and back to a level where the functioning of these economies is not going to be at the expense of other economies currently in the global south. And so that was 2014. Uh, started to read shyly about degrowth here and there. And I thought, uh, you know, to know about the concept, I need to chat with the people that have that are writing about this. So I signed myself for a summer school at the University of Barcelona with uh, all the scholars that uh, we know today, Federico de Maria, uh, Juan Martinez Allier, Vilka Securova, Yorgos Calis. And so I went there for the summer school and for two weeks with 80 other people, I think, we've just, you know, read a lot, 
and discussed about degrowth and I was hooked. It's like the contrast was huge to be like, I've been studying economics for more than four years, bachelor and masters, and I've never heard of that thing. Uh, I found the concept fascinating. I found the literature a bit messy. And so I thought that's the perfect mix. When you see something that is both interesting and chaotic, that's the good call. You should write a PhD about that. So I went into the degrowth field, hoping to bring a, a grand conceptual spring cleaning of that field. And uh, that's ended up in the publication of uh, the political economy of degrowth at the end of 2019. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. So ever since I've been uh, stuck uh, in, in, in the most enjoyable manner because I'm still fascinated by the concept and its economic implications. Uh, since 2014, you know, it has degrowth and very much broadly all the constellation of concepts that are attached to that term have helped me to understand fundamental things about the economy, the formation of inequality, uh, price formations, uh, the formation of hierarchies, and the very th things that I could not really understand before with the tools I was given in mainstream economics. Now I better understand them. So now I'm continuing down that road and uh, the PhD is done. I've written a, a wide audience book about it that synthesized the thesis for a white public that'll come out in French in uh, in a month. And uh, now I've, uh, I'm at the University of Lund. You can see my, my office here, starting a postdoc on a project called Post-Growth Welfare Systems, where we're gonna go a bit like one extra step. So just looking at very practical questions. So for example, the question I'm gonna be tackling is how do you finance a welfare state? during a degrowth transition and then in a post-growth economy. So that's one small aspect of the question, you know, how to prosper without growth, like Tim Jackson says, well, we will always need pensions and good quality public transport and education and healthcare. How do you finance this without growth? Wait two years and then hopefully I'll have a good answer for that. I can come back. For sure. And something you said that caught my eye and I resonated with it a lot is that this, some of these concepts are extremely fascinating and messy at the same time. So in the spirit of exploring um, these big concepts that you've mentioned and unpacking some of the words so that the messiness, the sort of uh, blurriness around it right now that at least I have in my mind and clearing it out, I would love for you to explain a little bit more about what exactly degrowth is and yeah. also in the context of economies. Usually when we think of economies, we have one certain perception of it. But I think when you're talking about a degrowth economy, you're talking about a new way of thinking about economics. And so I'd love to hear from your mind, what is economics in the traditional sense? And then how does degrowth economics look as compared to traditional ones? Okay, so now I see at least five ways of answering that questions, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to just uh, do a tunnel. And I'm, I'm going to start by saying this. So let me first make the difference between three important concepts, objection to growth, degrowth, post-growth. Part of the missness when I came into the field is that it was not really clear what was what. And in one chapter of the thesis, I've, divide, I've decided to do a historical analysis of the emergence of these ideas. And I realized that actually degrowth, as we talked about now, is 
the result of a historical accumulation of concept, you know, like sediments at the bottom of the sea. You know, every year there is more adding and you have all these layers. Well, the degrowth scholarship is this. You have actually a lot of layers that come back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, famously with the Meadows report in 72, there was the development of an objection to growth. So an objection to growth back then was basically environmentalists worrying that if economies keep producing and consuming more, at some point, they're just going to, you know, create too much pollution. They're going to run out of water. They're going to run out of fossil energy, and that's going to create a bunch of problems. That objection to growth at the beginning of the 2000s becomes degrowth. And the situation has changed in the sense of people realize that, oh, you know what? Those people in the 70s talking of objection to growth, like they were right. Now we've overshot planetary boundaries. And then the concept add another layers. It's not enough just to be critical of economic growth. It's not enough to worry. Now we actually need to scale back production and consumption in rich countries. And so you can see this kind of objection in the 70s that was very global, talking about humanity and all of that. In the 2000s, it starts to integrate global justice in the sense of like, wait, since the 70s, like rich countries, they've been producing and consuming a lot. And they've overshoot planetary boundaries, but we still have like mass poverty in many other countries. And so the concept of degrowth arrives to criticize sustainable development, to say sustainable development for everyone is just not clear enough. What we should have is sustainable degrowth in the global north, especially for people that are the most privileged, as to liberate resources for prosperity in the global south. You could say for sustainable development in the global south. Okay, so the articulation in between these two things, that's the second layer. But then it's still quite reactive. And it was, we're talking of degrowth as a transition, you know, a biophysical diet, shrinking the footprint so we liberate resources. So it's something that's not going to last forever. It's just a bit of a policy, a strategy. And that added, the extra layer was to realize that to decrease production and consumption, we also need to escape a social imaginary that defines economic growth as progress. So that's Serge Latouche, a French theorist of degrowth that was quite famous at the beginning of the 2000s, said, you know, we need to decolonize the social imaginary of growth and stop associating development with gross domestic product. And so there was this kind of like, okay, now degrowth is not only a real phenomenon of just producing and consuming less, so the opposite of economic growth, but it's also an escape from a specific discourse that equates growth with prosperity. And now I'm getting to the last step, which is post-growth. Because here we're still in the second step with degrowth about doing the biophysical diet in reality and just fighting against capitalism, imperialism, utilitarianism, consumerism, productivism, a lot of isms, but basically escaping a dominant discourse uh, that just defines a specific Western capitalist vision of progress. Post-growth has come a few years after when these people started to work on imagining the society that would come to replace capitalism. To be like, okay, but if we need to escape from global capitalism, what do we replace it with? What kind of businesses will we have? 
How will we work? What kind of relation to nature should we have? How will we do international trade? How will we finance public services? And so degrowth starts to dream itself a future. It becomes a utopia in the sense we already had the critic of the present, present, but now we also have degrowth as a societal project. So now when you hear someone talk about degrowth, this is not only a synonym for producing less cars. This is the aggregation of an 50 years old, you know, criticism of economic growth added with the realization that we need to scale back the size of rich countries in a perspective of global justice. And that for doing this, we also need to problematize certain ideologies and the economic, and the economic system of capitalism. And once we've done this, we can also, you know, transition to a post-capitalist post-growth economic system. So that's a lot of stuff for one single word. That's also what I like about it. It's a constellation of different concepts. But that will be my, my first way of answering that question is making this triple division. So, I mean, I think what's, like you said, what I find most attractive about the idea, Tim, is that there's uh, there's multiple parts in a very small package and so you're able to not only discuss the planetary boundaries of the environment but then you're also able to tackle the economic inequalities that we are faced with that we're not addressing just as a result of being in the current system that we are in um, and at the same time um, I'm also really interested in your your description of how growth and prosperity, essentially degrowth, is seeking to detach these two concepts. And I think there's a title of a book called Prosperity Without Growth, Growth, I should say, um, which I think tackles on the idea. And yet I feel like it's not, in a sense, it's intuitive. In a sense, it isn't because there's a lot of good things that grow. Kids grow up. When we go through a, uh, an experience that is uh, negative, or uh, is hard or is impactful it is we grow from that experience or uh you know plants fruit uh, the environment mm. grows and yet mm. uh uh cancer also grows and cancer doesn't stop growing and i think perhaps uh there's that that that's the point of degrowth in a sense or a point i should say yeah. where it's saying that uh uh Endless growth is shouldn't be the goal, and seeing growth as an end in itself, seeing growth as an end in itself rather than a means to an end, is not productive for society. Yeah, I'm. That's fantastic. I'm going to open the window and then answer that question. <laughs> a moment to pause and reflect. It's a point so important that I need to open the window to bring some oxygen into my brain to be able to address it. I mean, let me start here. Um, we all make the experience of growth in the sense of, you know, the six years old me that loved money a bit too much, uh, grew up to be the one meter 80 me at age 25, but I'm still one meter 80. So I've experienced bodily growth until my mid-20s, but then I have stopped growing. Does that mean that I'm the same that I was when I was 25? No. So biophysically, I have remained the same. My metabolism 
is in a steady state, but my mind is still evolving. So here we capture, you know, the basic difference between growth and development. So for me, when I hear that, you know, the goal is growth, I find like, no, growth in any living system is just a phase. Nothing in nature grows forever. There are always just phases of growth, stabilization, uh, receding, uh, death, rebirth. And so economists getting stuck on like an economy should grow forever seems like counterintuitive. And here, like same thing you've you've mentioned plants, even plants, you know, they don't, just don't grow forever. Even trees, they don't just grow to reach the sky. They're just, you know, their growth, you have a lot of feedback loops with their environment. So the growth of anything in a connected system will interact with others. The problem with our economies is that we've built them so that they don't listen to the signals of the system they're in. So they want to grow as much as possible and they will do anything to do that. It's like, you know, fast and furious growth, even if that means just destroying everything that is around. So as you've said in, in your list of analogies, the, the best comparison in nature is the cancer cell uh, that exponentially grow while, you know, just completely making abstraction of the system it is in and just grow that much as much as much until, you know, the system dies. And then that's just the end of it. Bit of a growth bonanza. I think capitalism has, has uh, fallen into the same problem. But when we sit, think about like what growth actually is, I find it very confusing to call it growth uh, because an economy, and then that's going to be my banger line of the day, an economy doesn't grow. It never grows. It's an analogy. But when you look at, ask an economist to be, what does it mean? economic growth, they will tell you, oh, it's an increase in GDP from one year to the other. And I'm like, oh, thank you very much. It's like defining heat by saying it's an increase in temperature. I mean, that's just, that's not an answer. It's a description. When you look at actually, to understand what economic growth is, we need to decompose GDP, which we're not going to do that. Otherwise, we're going to lose the 12 people that are currently listening to us on Twitch. But GDP basically is an aggregated indicator that put together all the value added in one economy. Technically, when you dissect it, you realize it's rather an indicator of agitation. So the more an economy is moving, imagine like an anthill and we're like little ants. The more we agitate ourselves with our little monies, the more we give monies to each other, the more the GDP increases because GDP record monetary activity. So if we have a lot of forest fire, then we're going to agitate ourselves to just, you know, extinguish the fire. Does that mean that we've, the economy has grown? Not really. It's just been agitated. Uh, same thing if you, let's say, commodify, we say as economists. So if you turn something that wasn't previously accessible for sale on the market into something that you can sell, your apartment. So for example, you put it on Airbnb. And then suddenly your apartment that wasn't a commodity can be uh, rented, right? So that can give rise to a monetary transaction. And so GDP is going to increase. Have you grown? No, you still have the same apartment than before. Instead of just lending it to your friends like you do, you would just lend it to a stranger and they'll give you money. So in that sense, the economy is not bigger. It's just the realm of market exchange has expanded. 
but it has not expanded absolutely. It has just colonized something that was just previously out of it. And that cannot expand forever because it can only expand to the number of apartments you have and the number of people are willing to just uh, lend their apartment. So when we start to get rid of the misleading analogy of economic growth and understand it as economic agitation, we really understand that certain forms of agitation are useless. So should we have like more forest fire every year so that we have more economic activity linked to extinguishing the fire? Is that progress? No, I'm like, no, it's not. It's counterproductive. It would be better not to have a fire. Then we don't need firefighters. We do the same thing for crime, same thing for just health. Uh, all these kind of stuff we realize. So if you take two economies, uh, one of them with like super fast rising GDP because there's a lot of agitation and another which is a pretty much steady state economy. And right now, and economists will tell you like one is a sick economy. It's like Japan stuck in a secular stagnation. You know, it's horrible. And the other is just booming economy. But in reality, you don't really know. Maybe there's just one economy that is just struggling to do a lot of things that it's trying to do. Like a chef, you know, you would compare two chefs trying to cook a meal. One is like a professional chef, so precise, French chef, you know, like he knows what he's doing, doing this, like with the team, you know, they're all just so precise. They don't mess the kitchen up. So they just bake the thing. They don't even have to clean up because they're so precise. And then you have like a team of like messy beginner chef and they're just like, put flowers everywhere and stuff. And so to make the bake the same cake, they will agitate themselves so much more. And then they will have to clean up everything they've messed up. At the end of the day, they've created the very same cake, but one has created a lot of agitation and one very much less. Take the same analogy of the two chefs and compare uh, maybe healthcare in France and healthcare in the US. So the healthcare system per inhabitants is a bigger contribution in the US than it is in France because it involves more monetary transactions because most of it is commodified. But are health standards better in the US? No, they're better in France. Same thing, compare the UK education system and the Finnish education system. Same thing, one country is agitating its monetary market a lot to get like quite a poor result than Finland that's just having the best education system in the world. Same thing, take a city like Paris, uh, or London with crazy housing prices, and you compare it to Vienna, mostly social housing with capped, you know, apartment and houses prices. So of course there's less monetary activity when you look at this. It looks like it's not booming. Prices are not rising. But in Vienna, which is top of the chart concerning quality of housing, you just happen to have affordable and resilient housing for people. So again, from the lens of GDP and national accounting. You sometimes you get like counterintuitive result by just looking only at economic growth. I'm going to say this last thing. I like to talk of agitation because that's a negative word. I don't like to be agitated. I like to be relaxed. And so in the same way that we have the opposition between, let's say, growth and degrowth, if growth is economic agitation, the opposite could be like basically economics relaxation. So once an economy has agitated itself, let's say for a pandemic where you, oh, wow, we need, to, we need to train more doctors. We need to produce a lot of masks. Like we need to just mobilize resources to produce and consume more. But once this is done, I want to see the economy chilling. The problem with our economies right now is that it never chills. 
even after, you know, every year you expect growth and GDP in proportion to the GDP of last year. So it's, it's what we call exponential growth in mathematics. So you just always want a bigger economy, which is just a, a crazy, uh, you know, uh, how do you call it? These uh, stupid machine you run on a, tr a treadmill. It's a treadmill that constantly accelerates. I take it back. Maybe not stupid machine. I, I don't like them personally. That's what I, I wanted to say. That's all. We get the connotation though, you know, the idea of the rat race and the wheel that you're mm -hmm. just constantly going on. Um, but I, I want to pose two uh, ideas that came up for me to clarify what you're talking about. So when you describe the chefs, um, I remember actually when I learned the concept of marginal law of diminishing returns, the way I came to understand that is through the concept of chefs, that we have a limited space in the kitchen. And if we keep adding more and more and more chefs in the name of you know growth and like giving jobs, then after some point, there will come a point when the return or the food that they're cooking will start to deteriorate in quality, their efficiency will reduce just because there's limited space in that kitchen, right? And adding way too many people, there comes a point where it's, it's not good. It's going and creating more destruction and agitation, as you said. So that's one idea. And I think that's what you're sort of alluding to. The second one that I'm thinking about is um, actually that I, I learned this from another economist that was on this podcast, Ryan Bourne. And he spoke about... Um, he was trying to explain economics to the context of the pandemic. And he created this sort of distinction that blew my mind. And at least I had never thought about that economics and finance are different, which means, or the way he explained it was that through the, in the pandemic, let's say like I'm staying home, I may be financially um, better off, but economically worse off. Because let's say that I'm not going out and I'm not going to the gym and I'm not meeting people and I'm not engaging with the world and uh, that will make me save a lot of money and I'll be richer as a result. But economically speaking, there are other factors to take into account as in my health, my well-being, my social connections, and mm. those start to deteriorate and that's why economically I am worse off. Mm. And so I think what you're also saying is that our economic system or what we're calling economic growth is rather just financial growth and our monetary system and our financial system is simply not accounting for all of the feedback loops that are happening in reality, right? In energy and flow of energy. And it's taking into account only this one small little like piece of what is actually going on and thinking that that is everything. And then we need to just keep on booming this little like uh, metric that we see it as our ultimate feedback loop, which you are calling the GDP. And I, I see what you're saying, like that GDP increasing is not the only sign because it's not taking into account all these other factors, which are really important, which are mm -hmm. just being thrown down the window and ignored. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious, does that sort of resonate with what you're saying, this kind of distinction between economics and finance and then the marginal law of diminishing returns? Completely. This this resonates. Uh, I think we need to come back to a question that sounds very naive and stupid, but that is actually quite deep. And after 15 years studying and researching economics, that's still a question I sometimes ponder. What is an economy and what is an economy for? Okay. Uh, 
hint, it's in the word, okay? An economy economizes resources. You know, we organize collectively with rules so that we actually do things that we could not do alone and that we could do things we could do alone more efficiently by economizing resources, meaning, you know, working less, saving energy, saving resources for other non-economic things that we value more. So in that sense, the economy is the social organization of how we satisfy our needs, of contentment, you could say. And so when we start from such a definition, we realize that many of the things we produce to satisfy our needs, many of our rules of organization have nothing to do with money, right? So there, there are certain economies that have ways of organizing their economies with uh, networks of reciprocity, with the logic of the gift uh, in the informal economy. And they just, you know, they just do that to satisfy the very same needs that a capitalist or socialist economy would do. So whatever, whatever economic system you look at, whenever you look at it, like the universal kind of dynamics is that you have a bunch of people coming together to define rules concerning extraction, production, allocation, consumption, and elimination of stuff in a way that satisfy the needs of that specific communities. Okay. And so at the end of the day, a performance economy is one that economizes a lot of resources. So, and that's the interesting paradox. So the more an economy is performant, the more it disappears, right? So if I'm economizing a lot of labor power because we get better production techniques, Maybe I don't have to work 40 hours a week. I'll work 30 hours a week. Maybe I'll work 20 hours a week, you know? So then over time, as our mode of organization gets more efficient, this actual size of the economy should decrease, right? We should liberate more and more resources through our smart organization to be dedicated to the non-economic pursuit of life, you know, so, science, family, love, playing chess, uh, having naps in a hammock. Okay, now I'm just telling too much about my personal life, but basically whatever you do, theater, politics, all these kind of things that uh, that makes, you know, the purpose of a, a lifetime. So that's one way of saying it. Like the economics is basically a game. It's like Monopoly. So game, we define the rules so that we play it sometime in order to get things done. Uh, but once we understand it like this, we also realize that if it's a game, then all its rules are, are designed. So there's just no natural laws in economics. We just make up the rules of the game. And if a rule doesn't work, we can change it. Right now, the weird stuff is when you realize, when you connect the dots with ecological reality and the dynamics of modern economies, you realize that, yeah, it's not really ecologically sustainable. I'm not, I'm not saying something outrageous here. If you think our current economies are, are sustainable, please just uh, send me a mail. I'm, I'm, I'll be waiting for the proof. But if you agree that there's a problem with it, then we need to rethink certain rules. And then some people be like, no, because economic growth is just the result of human nature. 
these kind of depoliticizing, naturalizing statement are actually denying the fact that the economy is socially constructed, uh, which I find strange as a social scientist, because this is really like social science 101. So that was my comment on like, right now, yeah, the financial economy, we tend to give it more importance than the actual economy, uh, part of which doesn't rely on finance. And I'll use another division that I really like that I take from uh, feminist economics, uh, which is a, a heterodox schools of thought in economic science that was born in, in, in the 90s, even before, but let's say um, the Journal of Feminist Economics was born in the 90s, and that look at the sphere of reproduction, they call it so when we think of economies, we tend to focus on production. So basically, you know, I go to the university and when I'm at university, I'm teaching a course, I'm producing something. And when I finish my day at five, I go home, then whatever, that's not economics anymore. That's leisure. Let's leave that to the sociologist. Uh, feminist economists, they're like, no, for every process of production to happen, you need to have reproduction because in between today at five, when I go home and tomorrow at Tomorrow is Saturday. Oh, wow. And between Monday at eight, when I come back to work, something needs to happen for me to replenish my ability to work, right? And that something is not, it's, it's very complex mush of interpersonal relationships and, and what I like to call, you know, um, uh, socio-systemic socio uh, services, a bit like uh, uh, ecosystem services social system services so you know i'm going to chill with my friends and my neighbors are going to help uh, to watch the kids my partner is going to do this so -da -da, a lot of different things that i can replenish my ability to do something and if we don't understand this mechanism of replenishment if we don't understand the reproductive side the shadow side of the economy then we we don't understand production at all and all of that fits in one sentence, probably one of the most elegant book in the history of economics, book title by uh, Catherine Marsal, a Swedish uh, journalist whose name sounds very French. And uh, her book is called Who Cooked Adam Smith Dinner? All is said here. Who, who, who was it? That was uh, his mom, Margaret Douglas. Uh, who's been taking care of Adam Smith all his life. So when you, you think about it, you're like, oh, Adam Smith was just such a genius. He produced so many works. But if he didn't have his mom to cook his meals and probably do so many other things, the production we have from Adam Smith could have probably just never occurred. So that's my second point now. Like the productive economy can never really be dissociated from the reproductive economy. So that's that's the triple, the double embeddedness to use a term by Carl Polanyi. So the, the economy, the narrow economy we tend to understand, so the stuff of money and factories and, and, and markets and stuff like this is embedded within a broader societal sphere of reproduction. So the economy is only a subfield of social life, just a game we play sometimes, but that's a game also that most of the time we don't play it. So economies embedded in society and society itself is a subfield of the living world. So society is itself embedded into the ecosphere, right? So we have this double embeddedness that seems kind of shocking because we are often taught about the triple bottom line. And you remember this three consent, this three cycle of sustainable development, you know, people, planet, profit, and they're all equal. Like they're not all equal. 
There are actually three concentric cycles. The economy can never be bigger than society that can never be bigger than the biosphere. And guess what? The biosphere never gets bigger. Load of thermodynamics. It's in a steady state. So we can, with better technologies and smarter modes of organization, we can make more of it, but we will never be able to, you know, use more materials than they are on earth. And same thing, society, they don't really get bigger unless you have more people. But in most countries of the world, you don't have uh, population growth anymore. So they're, they're, they're kind of like settled in size, at least in the economies that I study. So high-income nations uh, where degrowth apply, high-income nation in ecological overshoot. So also society, they're quasi steady state. So these two systems, they are kind of restraining the economy. And then we have the economy that is supposed to grow forever. Of course, there's going to be a problem. It's like you're... I, <laughs> It's like you're 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 basically have a shoe mm. size, you know, a shoe size six, like a, a kid shoe, and you want to keep it all your life, and you're expecting your foot that can grow forever in, inside a shoe that is just not growing. Common mm. sense is, I mean, spoiler alert, it's not going to work. I I think to try and sum up what you've said, Tim, I think there's a a lot uh, a lot there, but if I was to try and capture the essence if we were to sort of structure it we addressed in in some sense the first part of what is the problem with current the current economy which is it's developed in a way that even when efficiency increases uh, even uh, when efficiency increases um, instead of things slowing down to meet our personal needs our well-being our uh, uh, our income needs all those needs, instead of it shrinking to meet those needs, it actually doubles. And uh, that means that our output is consist consistently increasing and never stops. And in fact, if an economy grows, if economies meant to grow two to 3% every year, that means it doubles every 20 years, which means there's this constant growth, constant doubling. And there's not a, a moment in which the individual needs of a person are considered on a systematic level. And so you get instances where there's uh, wealth held in a very small minority of people with the majority of people uh, maybe not having as much as they could have or would need to have in order to live a life that is adequate. Um, and then you use that to dive into our ideas of degrowth and mentioning how growth itself is an idea. It's a social construct. It is something that comes from economics, which is a social science, as you as you pointed out, and that we can live. Yeah, <laughs> and we can live by different rules because these are games. These are rules that are constructed for a particular game, and it's really asking us on, on a philosophical le level: what is the economy meant to be? Who is it meant to serve? Uh, and what is the purpose of life in a sense? Because if the purpose of life is to constantly produce, then perhaps GDP and all these things are perfect. But I think as we're seeing, that's definitely not the case, or at least in some areas. Um, mm. And I, I, I wanted to give a quick anecdote. Um, and it's a bit trivial, but I think it, uh, it, uh, it outlines an interesting uh, a correlation between what you've been mentioning. So last at my in in 2021 i was working part-time going to university doing all sorts of leisurely activities reading a lot um books like less is more um running playing chess as you mentioned 
doing all these things. Um, and it was great. Everything was great. Um, that's not to say things are not great now, but I ended up taking on a full-time job. Uh, I've doubled my income as a result because I was working full-time. And yet there's a strange uh, thing that's happening where I have my wealth is my, or my wealth, my income has doubled, but I have less time to meet with friends, to do leisurely activities, to read, to write, to engage with life in a way that uh, it ought to be engaged with, at least from my point of view. And yet from a pure economic point of view, or maybe I should say financial point of view, I should be better off. And not only that, but this is the starting point. Now the next point is for me to get promoted, to get promoted again, to then become as high income as I possibly can, can, I can possibly generate, and then to retire at some point in 30, 40 years time. And so it, uh, I guess it, this is a long way of saying that there, there aren't any limits around, uh, around what, what does enough look like? Uh, and yet, if we look at the starting point where I was when I was making half the income and a part-time salary, I would say perhaps that is the aim. And obviously, things change, but I think this gets to an interesting question, which we can dive into now, which is uh, philosophical underpinnings of degrowth. And mm. I would like to get an understanding of what are those philosophical underpinnings? Because obviously, there's a lot of value placed on well-being, on engaging in life in in such a manner where you're not perhaps not working all the time, but Perhaps you're with your family, your friends, but I'd like to get a better understanding of that. So when I wanted to answer that question in chapter six of my thesis, where I was wanted to get down to the the philosophical essence of degrowth, so define degrowth as a number of values, I ended up with the triad of autonomy, sufficiency, and care. And so I think if there's something in common in the entirety of the degrowth literature and the way the concept has been built since the 70s, something that has never changed, is a commitment to these three values. And I'm, I'm going to just quickly describe them. Um, so autonomy comes from, in the degrowth literature, is, is a principle of freedom that you find in Cornelius Castoriadis, um, work in the 70s where Castoriadis was building this dichotomy between autonomy, a situation of self-determination, of critical uh, choosing of your own life path and decisions when you're autonomous to just decide what you want to do. And this to be opposed to heteronomy. So heteronomy is the opposite. Let's say you have you know a boss that is just telling you to do whatever the boss wants to do. That's an heteronomous decision. You haven't decided to do this. You're just doing what the boss has told you. Same thing if you're a colony and you know the, the, the imperial country that is controlling you is telling you, you export some resources to us. You're not making an autonomous decision to just extract that resource. You are uh, the victim of an heteronomous force. And so the, the first value, this principle of freedom, translate into basically the, the good old you know, Greek ideal of critical thinking, of just asking yourself, what do I want in life? You know, I, am I just deciding 
to go back to full-time because that's what I want? Or do I do this because it's expected of me in a culture where if you work part-time, you're a slacker? If you're just earning, you know, just not as much as everyone earning full-time, you're considered to be like somehow sub-developed as an individual. Or can I make an autonomous decision sometime against cultural norms to be like, you know what? No, I value my time. I like running. I like playing chess. And I'm going to decide to do this. So first principle, autonomy. Second, sufficiency. Sufficiency, it's a rule of distributive justice. And in the thesis, it's, it's linked to um, a schools of, of philosophy that's often referred to as limitarianism. So the idea that if you want to somehow, like that distributional justice requires the setting of, of limits. In, in, in growth economics, if your economy grows forever, you don't have to choose, right? Everyone's income can grow. And actually that the way we look at poverty, we're like, if for, to eradicate poverty, we need the poor to grow their income faster than the rich. But we're still, everyone is still increasing their income. From a limitarian perspective, further to be like, well, we need, for example, to have a maximum wage in order to be able to have a minimum wage. You know, we, we th always concentrate inequality as a matter of just interaction between the two. And so that, that rule of distributive justice translates in what you talked about, like this kind of philosophy of enough, of like what is degrowth is somehow the self-determined, so the autonomous uh, determination of limits. So in that sense, it is perhaps the most uh, ancient uh, human philosophical question of all, you know, because our existence and especially our social life is always framed by the setting of limits. And I should have added something about autonomy. Autonomy is not only an individual feature, like if I'm a critical thinker, I'm autonomous. It's also a collective. You can have an autonomous society, for example. You can have an autonomous company where you have a cooperative with a healthy participatory democracy that would be considered autonomous or you can have the same company with one boss telling everyone what to do so the goal in in castoriadis ideal and something you find in the degrowth literature is to have autonomous individuals that can then congregate to form a healthy participatory democracy back to sufficiency so this the logic of enough uh, that also has to do with here, let's come back with needs. Um, I, I always invite people to name me needs that are unlimited. Needs they have that should constantly increase in an exponential manner. And I've done this exercise for myself and I've never found one. Like every need I can think about as levels of satiation, mobility. I may want to go to A to B and maybe, you know, I get split from my family and I, I've got an increased need for mobility, but that need is not going to increase every year in proportion to what it was the year before. So I just need access to the means of transportation in order to satisfy my needs of mobility. Once this is done, this is done. If my needs decrease, then I can decrease, you know, the effort I put in producing that means of transportation. If I've got a higher need, I need to increase it, but it's fluctuations around a steady state. And if you go around all the fundamental human needs, like, for example, in, in Manfred Max Neef, a matrix of fundamental human needs, 
you realize, and even you can ask, ask it for yourself in, in a very like day-to-day matter, like what do I need today to have a good day? You know, I'll need to, I don't know, be able to have a shower, the food, ta da da Everything is satiable. So when we think about the economy, you know, earlier I talked about like the social organization of contentment. Contentment, I like the word because it's just reaching satiation. Just enough, not too much, not not enough, just the right amount. We have a word in Swedish that is lagom. Lagom means precisely this, and it's also a bit of a philosophy. Lagom is just you take exactly what you need, not more because otherwise someone might be lacking and not having enough. So that's, that's uh, you know, uh, Gandhi, like, uh, you know... Uh, I don't even re- I don't even remember the super famous uh, quotation, you know, but um, uh, just uh, living simply so that others may simply live kind of philosophy. So here we are on the logic of sufficiency, uh, a rule of distributive justice. Switching to the third value, care. So care is about a more recent uh, term. We hear it a lot care economy, care services, the philosophy of care. In that sense, I'm using it as a rule of ethics. Uh, and I'm I'm using care as the opposite of exploitation. So in the sense of exploitation is a situation where I'm going to use someone's disadvantage at my benefit. Very simply, I walk into the street, I see a kid in a wheelchair with a bag of money, well, I take it because, you know, they're not going to be able to outrun me. I've used that disadvantage to my advantage. I've exploited the kid in a way that's going to result in a degradation of that person's autonomy. Okay. So the opposite would be uh, solidarity, right? If I see someone in a situation of vulnerability, I'm going to sacrifice some of my position of privilege to help them. You see a grandmother, you know, is just trying to cross the street. You're going to take some of your time to help them. Solidarity, you give money to a beggar. You're just losing some of your money. You're lowering your level of privilege in order to just increase someone else that is in a position of vulnerability. We see here, like through this simple example, that the dialectic of just solidarity versus exploitation. When you think about any of your economic interaction in a daily life, Ask yourself, is that an exploitative relationship or is that a solidary relationship? After I interact with that person that is cutting my hair, the supermarket, after I work an hour at my job, you know, what's happened? Have I created more vulnerability or have I resolved existing vulnerabilities? Degrowth aims to resorb vulnerability. So it's a principle of care when you want to redesign the economy and its relation with nature. So that actually the default mode of interaction is when we get confronted to a vulnerability, we just do something to reduce it. That's a thought experiment I always run with my students. Imagine a little model where every time you meet someone in the street, there's a little uh, dollar sign on their head indicating like in Sims, how much money they have on their bank account. And every time you see someone that have less money than you, you can give them a bit of money automatically. So you, you can build that model on a computer and what would happen you know, in the very long term. Uh, and you see that 
that through that little silly experiment, we, we realize somehow that relation that we feel are just completely neutral in terms of political economy, in terms of power dynamics, they always involve some kind of reinforcement or diminution of vulnerabilities. So autonomy, sufficiency, and care uh, as a trial of moral values uh, 4D growth. That's And then that's only the first step. I'll stop here, but in the thesis, what I do in chapter six, so I just define these broad moral values, we could say philosophical values, and then I'm asking myself, what kind of economy would fit this values? And I define, I think in the thesis was 15 principles of economic organization that fit, but we're not going to get into these, otherwise uh, we're here for a full day. So in that spirit, I'd like to quickly see if I understand the three principles that you presented and summarize it sort of, and perhaps present some ideas that I was able to connect it to. Um, so basically the first one, autonomy, I see it as having choice and sort of a bottom-up way of organizing. If you were to see it in the context of a company, there's, like you said, there's a top-down hierarchical structure and then there's a bottom-up system. And so like what you what I'm hearing you say is it's a more bottom-up system, but another layer that I would add to it is it's informed choices that I'm making, not blind choices. So that's the, I really like that one idea. The second one you said is sufficiency and knowing that we are limited. And I think this gets into fundamental, as you said, ancient ideas of even pondering our own limitations on mortalities of life, right? That ultimately we are limited, but paradoxically, we also have the mind to be able to ponder the infinite and the eternal. And so as Kierkegaard said in his book, the concept of anxiety that what anxiety is, is a dizziness of freedom or a dizziness of knowing that we can be infinite. But ultimately, he says the way to sort of resolve that is to accept the finitude of life and within that mm. be enough. And for me and Xavier, this is something that's big because, you know, as we started doing this podcast, we realized this idea of uh, wanting to improve and grow and, you know, this kind of mindset that we're culturally ingrained with fundamentally comes from a place of inadequacy. And so sufficiency, on the other hand, sort of saying that I am enough, right? I, I is a metaphor for the greater system. We are enough. That I think is valuable. And also along with that, I like to believe that self-acceptance and self-sufficiency um, is not mutually exclusive with self-improvement. And so I also like to say that, yes, I am enough and I can always do things in a better way and keep on growing but now i have more nuanced understanding of growing but not in the traditional ways perhaps becoming better at what i'm doing becoming a master at what i'm doing refining my skills um, and just living a more fulfilling life and then the third piece that i understand care how i see it is ultimately you're saying it's some kind of inclusion of more things that the monetary system seems to be excluding, right? And that's where we sort of have externalities because we don't care, right? I'm going to pursue profits. And as a result, if the environment suffers, if the people suffer, we're just going to call them negative externalities and not think about them. And that's the sort of NIMBY attitude, not in my backyard. I don't want to care, out of sight, out of mind. But when we can include it by having these informed choices and shining light upon all these different things, um, 
it seems like the care that we have for these things start in, increasing and we i don't know this is maybe a podcast for another day to explore whether how can an economic system be designed to care right like does that mean we have data driven systems that take in more information about externalities and what's happening with the flows of information and energy and you know all those kinds of things or is there a different one um but finally what we'd love to hear about something we ask all our podcast guests is you know we've discussed all these things uh what is this who is the hero what does the hero believe in now we want to know what does this hero's utopia look like and i i know you can describe the 15 principles to define this utopia but what i would invite you to do is mm. tell a story or almost like a day in the life of timothy in this mm. degrowth utopia like what would that day look like in my head yeah so what what you talked about like xavier earlier about what the german called time prosperity so in in my utopia i have enough time to do all the things i want to do in my day i never get to a day where i go to bed and i'm like feeling anxious about my to-do list because i feel i don't have time to do all the thing i want to do so i'm in a situation of time prosperity uh i'm living in a place where i know people around where i've got relationship to the people that i share my life with and where these relationship also include known humans now i live in lund lund is a very small student city every morning i wake up i go to university and i see a rat uh there's this little rat that come in the morning to feed on the grass in front of my office and i always just in the morning i stop and i look at it and don't get too close otherwise you get scared uh, but it's a cute little rat and that's you know i've been doing this for two months now and uh that rat is very important in my life it's i've i've got a relationship to the rat and i'm happy i can have this relationship i'm happy i'm not you know living in a society where i'm like oh this is a rodent it should be killed well i hope it doesn't get killed but my utopia is a society where we somehow have a sense of ecological sympathy and of collective creativity that allow us to create relationship with rivers with trees with rats it's a society where you can have daily act of courage of being like you know what if like in the night here when you cycle during the summer there are a lot of hedgehogs hedgehogs they cross cycling lane and they do it very slowly this lazy little things so you don't want to run over them with your bike and so when i cycle in certain bits next to the forest i always cycle super slow because i would be terrified to run over a hedgehog i want to live in a society where people have internalized this care for not only their dog but everything else so it's a society where we don't eat animals because uh we've all grown up with the disney films and you know animals that have emotions and names and personalities uh we don't eat people so if we considered animals as people uh we don't eat them uh also in that utopia i'm imagining it's a 
utopia where you're constantly invited into societal participation. That's my take on the issue of unemployment. Unemployment is a terrible thing because that society, or at least the economy, telling you you're useless. It's like coming to a party and you really want to help because you want to feel useful. And they're like, no, there's nothing you can help with. Just sit down and wait. It's horrible. No, you want to help. I want to be in a community where regardless of my skills, there's always someone that's going to be, yeah, of course you can help with something. Like with kids. We have this with our kids. When we cook, you know, uh, four years old is not going to help me cook like a super complex lasagnas, you know, but you invite them nonetheless, even though it makes the process more, less efficient. Increase in conviviality, decrease in efficiency. I want to live in a society where every single time we make these big decisions about what to produce and how to produce, we prioritize sustainability and conviviality before talking about efficiency. And in that society, I want to, it's a society that celebrates uh, the surplus. It's a concept in the degrowth literature coming from French anthropologist Georges Bataille, which is called dépense. Dépense in French means spending, but in anthropology, dépense is the study of how societies enjoy the surplus of production. Right now, how do we do that? We produce a lot of stuff, but somehow, well, rich people, they appropriate a lot of that and then they just have fancy lifestyles, but doesn't feel like richness. We don't really collectively celebrate surplus. Uh, look at old buildings. You know, Lund University was created in the 17th century. And when you look at the older buildings of university, you just, you're mesmerized. It's fantastic. I'm like, now we're much richer than we were. Why are we not just building craft luxury cathedral by hand? You know, we could afford to do all these beautiful things, but we do the opposite. The more we grow, the more we produce cheap industrial stuff. Is it not a bit of an opposition? So in my society, it's a society of craft, of low tech, of convivial tools, of people that, you know, find meaning and passion in what they produce. And also in reflection of who we are as individuals with fluctuating interest, it's a society where you don't choose a career. There's just no such thing as a career. You just, you know, then we're falling back into the communist utopia, but also, you know, I'm a scholar. Does that mean that I need to spend 40 hours a week just, you know, writing papers? No. I mean, I could do other things. I like farming. I grew up in a peasant family. I spent my childhood, uh, you know, helping on, on the farm. And I would be more than happy to farm, you know, one or two days out of the week. I think it would be a healthy balance. I would be happier, a bit of manual labor, a contact with nature, and then I back to university doing this. So this kind of story we tell ourselves about like one job, one specialty, efficiency, specialization. That's how also you get high salary because you're highly specialized. It's dangerous. It makes us miserable. And it's very risky because the one day your specialty is not on demand, you're gone. And then that's horrible. Whereas, you know, if I write papers and one day, uh, well, my papers are not as good as they used to be. And I'm, oh, that's fine. Then I'm going to do a bit more farming. or I'm going to pick up like something else. I, I could continue because this is a very fun exercise, but I think you get a bit of a feel of, <laughs> of the yeah. utopia of Tim. 
hundred percent. And just to quickly uh, share a quote on the last line about careers and specialization, Dostoevsky said that only fools become something. And so I like the spirit of not wanting to just be that one thing and have multiple things that we do in our lives and our identities being more complex. Um, and so in the spirit of individual lives and identities, I'm curious, you know, behind me, it says stop being a critic and start being a creator. So we've been criticizing current society. And I think it's a very productive and useful thing that we must all do, you know, engage in the dialectical process. But finally, the, the question that I am left with is, how can we start creating this utopia? Because I resonate with this a lot, and I would love to create this utopia. But in, on an individual level, how can I create this utopia in the here and now? Not one day in the future, but now. Yeah. So what would be some invitations? Right, We gave you invitations at the beginning, so I'd encourage you to give us some invitations yeah. to start yeah. doing certain actions practically uh, to live this sort of utopia. So first, we need to realize that the utopia already exists. In the cracks of the dominant discourse and hegemonic capitalism, there are many people that think and live differently. So in France, uh, you know, we have 4.5 million companies. And some of them, I, last time I checked, a couple of dozen thousands are cooperatives. Some of them are nice little worker recuperated self-run not-for-profit cooperatives that are truly in the future. They're already post-capitalist companies. So if we're looking for inspiration, we don't have to sit down and draw. We can just go in reality and hunt for the special, hunt for the business as unusual. And sometimes we see something subtle like once you get this embodied knowledge of just having been in such a cooperative, if you're going to work in a normal company and you're going to sense the hierarchy, you're going to sense the lack of democracy, you're going to be like, ah, there's something wrong with this. So you're going to become an agitator. You're going to engage in professional disobedience, uh, in civil disobedience too. And so you're going to become a utopian forces in yourself. You're going to just, you know, be giving red pills to others that will start to see also the utopia and the cracks of the present. And so therefore we have this contagion of utopian thinking. So for me, when I looked about, I'm always on the hunt, looking around for utopia where it exists. And then in the abstract, what we can do as philosophers and social scientists is to connect these pieces of utopia together, to imagine what kind of society, if it were only formed with these kind of things. And, and sometimes it's very silly thing. Uh, I don't want to make myself I don't want to make myself look like a generous guy or anything but just I'm going to tell you a little anecdote. Uh I came back to France last summer and I was just selling a bunch of stuff I found in my parents basement that I had when I was a teenager and there was this very fancy longboard. I remember I worked at McDonald's for just a month to save the money to buy this fancy longboard like a skateboard. No use of it so I put it you know, to sell for 60 euros or something like this on, on a secondhand market. I get contacted by a guy. So okay, I'll buy it. The guy comes to my house and uh, is a four years old dude. And then he brought his son. The cutest little 13 years old came with all this knee pads and protection. And uh, so the son was the one that wanted the skateboard and said, okay, try it. See if you like it. 
the guy like a whole professional checking the thing skating around just like trying and then like i love it it's so cool it's just what i want and then the dad's like okay i just give the money guys is taking a little wallet and his little bills you know little coins and paying and and you know i'm like you know what just have it for free and i'm like you know that i'm happy to give it to you i'm happy to give it to you I had fun with it also when I was a kid. I have fun with it. And you know, when we're done, when you're done having fun with it, just give it to someone else. This little act of bringing the logic of the gift in a society, in a capitalist society where the logic of market exchange is dominant is creating a crack. In the mind of that kid, I believe, and even his dad on the day being like, are, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? You know, they get, they're like, no, 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 we can't pay. I was like, I know you can. But that's not the problem. I want to give it to you. So I gave it to them. The day after they came back, they brought me some uh, beers that they had made in their home because they really wanted to give something back to me. And, you know, following the logic of the gift by another anthropologist, Marcel Moss, that gift has created a social relation that would have never been created through the logic of market exchange because market exchange give you the skateboard, you give me 60 euros, that's it. Then we never talk to each other. But now with the logic of the gift, we create social glue. So now that little act, if we aggregate and imagine a society where there are actually more gift than market exchange, I think it is society where I would rather live than one where everything is just market exchange and you just everything you lend and everything you, you give to people is always through just the medium of money. So just a little story to maybe inspire people to become... Uh, not only utopian thinkers, but also utopian agents and just starting to create the cracks, finding cracks, making them larger, working together to create more cracks. And I, and I think that's a great way to wrap this up and to sort of embody the essence of what our, our, our channel is about in terms of utopia is now, because it is by enacting current actions that we're able to uh, not only create movements that last, but also continue movements that grow. And so if the, if one of the strongest messages wasn't to give away your longboards, well, I think that <laughs> there'd be other messages of kindness and giving and thinking of ways how things can be done differently. And you don't have to wait for a, a particular future, but you can start enacting them now. And to use the word you were using, Tim, uh, agitate the system that exists in order to, uh, reimagine something that could be better and i think that's a good way to wrap up but before that i wanted to see shash is there anything you wanted to add yeah i mean one thing is that we could like based on what you just said at the end i could just keep on asking more questions and continuing <laughs> and in the spirit of what you just shared which is a social glue and continuing relationships and not just having like you know, one time saying, oh, we've interviewed this guy and then that's it, close deal, we put this video out and now we don't care. To not take on that spirit and to embody the spirit of continuing these conversations uh, because it did really resonate at least with me and I think that the whole philosophy of this channel is just exactly what you're talking about. Um, we'd love to continue the conversation. I actually, I'm going to email you a few things that I've written about utopian thinking and made a video about a Great. utopian society which aligns a lot with what you're talking about. So um, yeah, I'd invite anyone else as well who's interested in these kinds of conversations and enacting this kind of change in our here and now in our own bodies um, to, to become a part of this kind of 
dialogue and and community so thank you so much i really really appreciate you coming out here and spending this time with us and sharing all these things and uh, i can hope to continue the, the conversation forward with pleasure thank you for having me and it was a, a great pleasure